everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, welcome to a new year and I'm excited to share with you the first episode of 2022. I have with me today Maria Gaspar, an interdisciplinary artist whose work addresses issues of spatial justice to amplify, mobilize, or divert structures of power through individual and collective gestures. Maria got her BFA from Pratt Institute and MFA from the University of Illinois at Chicago and is currently an associate professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I first became aware of Maria's striking photographic pieces before realizing her large breadth of work also existed in installation, sound, social practice, and performance. I enjoyed learning about her work, and we discussed going to art school as a first-generation immigrant, performance as practice, the invisibility of jails, guides that are generative as opposed to predictive, and reimagining new and better worlds. As always, stay safe and healthy in this new year, and I hope you enjoy this. Yeah, I mean, I wish I'd just woken up, but I have a two-year-old at home, and he's an early riser. So okay. <laughs> um, usually my day starts around, I mean, though he's been sleeping later the past week, which is really nice, but later means about 6.30. So, <laughs> so I've been up for a while, but it's good. I like the morning time. So it's the, my favorite part of the day. It's a, uh, it's been a good morning so far. Yeah. I mean, I think as I've gotten older, I've started sleeping <laughs> earlier and waking up earlier as well. <laughs> Are you trying to say I'm old? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I'm getting older, but <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you right there. So yeah, you know, how did you get into art and got into all the art making that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in, in Chicago. I uh, was, you know, born and raised in a part of the city that is predominantly Mexican and Mexican-American. I'm first generation mm-hmm. uh, Mexican-American. My parents migrated in the 60s when they were young adults. And they met here and then they came through a kind of migrant workers program. So my father um, came as a young man to work in a factory where he ended up working for almost 50 years, like 50 literally years. the same wow. job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, my mother under a kind of similar condition where she came through via my uncle who had gotten another factory job in Chicago. And so they settled on the west side of the city, which is predominantly Black and Latinx. And uh, that's where we were all raised. And some of our family came from Mexico, but some of them also stayed in uh, the northern, mostly northern part of Mexico. So so we have okay. family there and here. And, and some other family kind of uh, went towards the west coast. And some are even in places like Georgia. But predominantly, I mean, I have like hundreds of cousins here really? in Chicago. So. <laughs> You'll find a gas bar. You know, somewhere. I mean, you'll find many gas bars in Chicago if you're 
um, if you spend enough time here, you'll probably meet a couple family members at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. So certainly community is a big part of my lived experience and that, you know, has been felt and lived since I was a kid. So it's something I know quite well and that I'm grateful for. And I think through that practice, I kind of came to art because my mom, mostly my mom was a, um, is still with us, um, but she's a really creative person, you know, is always making things at home with whatever material she had at home. She was making ready-mades, you know, really? she <laughs> uh, was, you know, she wouldn't call it that, but I, you know, I, I would say that. And, um, and she was my entry point into this this term social practice, you know, I think she, she was a social practice artist, a community-based artist. And I saw her embody that practice through her life as what they call here, a paraprofessional, you know, she wasn't, you know, my parents didn't go to college. So they, so my mother was a, you know, paraprofessional. So she was like kind of technically a teacher's aide, but also just you know, 35 years of teaching, you know, she, she knows a lot about teaching. And um, I really saw her embody a kind of care for community, a kind of creative practice that was really about people and compassion and and love and enjoy a lot of joy. She was also then a clown professionally. She she was a professional clown. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She went, I think on the weekends or during the evenings during the week, she would go to a community college and take clown classes where she became certified as a clown. And um, she would do shows in the community. Like if, Uh if one of her students had like a birthday, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They might invite her to just come do like a balloon segment or some, something funny, you know, in full clown makeup. And then because I, you know, I'm one of four kids, I'm the youngest of my siblings and we're about 10 to 15 years apart. So Uh when she kind of had this, kind of emergent creative practice, you know, in her late thirties, early forties, yeah. I was witness to that. And I was always with her yeah. as she explored that part of herself. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then that sort of inevitably meant that I participated in that work with right, her. Right, so I right. was also clowning and, and then she had a radio program at a local like boys and girls club that was two blocks away from our house. So she had a a poetry show and the kind of women's health show. So I was also kind of hanging out at the radio station while she did her program. So I'd say, you know, those beginnings were really kind of primary to my art education. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, wow. I can like totally see the, all the links, like, you know, clown as performer, clown as sort of Mm. catharsis and then also teaching and sort of, and like you were saying, Mm. the community aspect of growing up with, you know, hundreds of cousins that I can't even imagine that I don't have that sort of lived experience of having so many family members around. So I think, yeah, I mean, I can totally see that link. So so I guess you growing up with all of this and observing your mom, were you also, th- you know, drawing and painting, you know, while you were at school or sort mm-hmm. of crept in later on? Mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I, I enjoyed how she, my mom was able to sort of make something out of nothing. Like the sort of magic mm-hmm. of that was really amazing. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of resources. So you just sort of use whatever you had. Right. And I really love that. So that I, rem- I remember that part too. That was like really powerful realization or yeah. I mean, I didn't know any better really. Right. I didn't have a comparison. So that right. to me, that was amazing. Right. Right. And I was always, I mean, I was always coloring and, um, 
and now that I have a little a child, <laughs> I'm always like, "Don't you want to color?" You know, <laughs> he's just like, I mean, he's too little still, but he's like, "Do you want no. him to be an artist?" <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I want him to be creative, and I want him to okay. be a critical thinker. So yeah, whatever yeah. that means, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, I'm <laughs> there's certain certain probably careers I don't want him to go into. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but uh, cre- yeah, creativity is important to us here. Yeah. Yeah. So coloring and and then eventually I began doing. Well, actually, I should probably mention one funny thing. Uh-huh. When I was in grammar school, I went to a kind of like you know repressive Catholic school, as you know, in the this was late eighties, yeah. early nineties. Yeah. So it was all about silence and just a lot mm-hmm. of silence. Like you shouldn't speak, <laughs> <laughs> don't share your ideas. And so one of the things that I was, they were, they recognized that I was a pretty, you know, I was a good drawer, Yeah. which is funny because I, I, when I meet other artist friends, I have heard several artist friends say that they got out of certain things through drawing, like drawing was a way out of like a class or something. And that was a, a similar experience for me where I didn't have to go to math class because somebody needed to draw five saints for the church (laughs) event because, you know, there was always like a saint's day. There was always a a saint, you know, so I was like, great. (laughs) So I would just sit in the hallway and draw like Mary's and embellish them. And, and, uh, and that was a a way to get out of, you know, like math class, which I was not very good at. That's so amazing. I struggled with math is equal to art. I wish, I mean, I think, I I feel like it's an unresolved relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Because (laughs) I think it's awesome and I just never, I I don't know, I may always struggled with that, unfortunately. So I'm jealous of my like good, like artist friends who are good math people too, you know? (laughs) No, I meant just sort of like even to consider that as a kid that you could replace math class for arts at that, or that even that there might be. Oh. On a sort of equal footing. That's sort of where I went, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it was not introduced like that to us, you know? It was like, it was about, yeah, it was like distinct. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, so that that was also, and then murals, you know, like mm-hmm. just growing up in Chicago and Chicago being kind of the epicenter for a mural movement to, you know, that was also really profound experience. Right, right. Right. And so as you continued with all, you know, your development of art, were your parents sort of nervous about the trajectory of you becoming an artist? I mean, you also applied to Pratt for your undergrad. And so at Mm -hmm. that point, that's some amount of devotion that I think would cause a lot of (laughs) parents to pause. And yeah, I mean, I think like, uh, you know, I've heard other immigrant families talk about this where I think, you know, like coming Mexican culture has such a important, you know, tradition of arts and culture, you know, it's embedded in like every part of, I would say, our lives through, mm-hmm. you know, food or craft or artesanías of, you know, just making with one's hands, you know, that's mm-hmm. so important. But I think being a kind of first generation person and being the first one to go to college in my family, they were definitely not excited about going the route of, of art school yeah for them that that was you know as many families might you know agree is that that it you know it's there's a certain amount of instability with going into an art you know art career and they certainly shared that yeah. and they they preferred me doing you know my, I think my mom 
this is a funny idea, but she wanted, I mean, it's not a funny idea. I think it's totally fine, but I have no interest in this, which is she wanted me to be at the time they were called stewardess. She's like, you know, you should be okay. a stewardess because that's like a proper, you know, it's like they look nice, okay. <laughs> they travel, you know, yeah, and I guess yeah. in some ways in her day, maybe yeah, yeah, being yeah. a flight attendant was like a great position because mm -hmm. as a woman, maybe, yeah, yeah, you could travel, right? There's a yeah, certain yeah, amount of independence, yeah. mm -hmm. but I probably hadn't even flown that much at that point because we were not really traveling, getting right. on planes. Right. So I had no idea what that would be like. Anyway, yeah. So sh they weren't super keen on it. No, I mean, it was a fight. It was a real okay. fight, actually. That was a really, I mean, but I was so, I mean, I knew I wanted to be an artist like, early on. And I had these amazing mentors as a kid. I mean, that was also the, I think the problem in some ways for my family was like, my mom encouraged me, but then she right, right. really nurtured that. And then I, be I became like really close to practicing artists who became my mentors, who for me were like, proof that I could yeah, yeah. be an artist yeah. and I, I could sort of live as one. I saw them doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they were like, well, let's put the brakes on that. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. tried to bribe me with the car, you know, like, well, really? if you, you know, <laughs> maybe we, we can get you a car. Don't you want a car maybe? And it's like, yeah, no, yeah. actually, <laughs> I don't want a car. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was looking back at that moment, I am, you know, I completely understand my parents and, you know, they weren't making a lot of money. Right. I mean, it's like paraprofessional and somebody yeah. who's a machinist at a factory and going to a private art school in yeah, New York yeah. was kind of like crazy, but I had, you know, some financial support from the school and yeah, I was working when I was there and, um, it, you know, it was not easy though. It was actually very difficult. And, and, and there, there were other many other things too, but but you know, hopefully now they're like, oh, I guess it turned out okay, you know. I think so. It seems. It seems. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it. <laughs> like all right, he's yeah. doing all right. Yeah, I mean, you're a, prof <laughs> you're a professor. You know, you got a master's, and you know, you're getting reviews and grants. So, and yeah, I mean, I think my my mom also she encouraged me also to do art, but I think she was similar. Mm. She was hoping mm -hmm. that I'd eventually grow out of it. But, uh, uh yeah right yeah <laughs> yeah it was supposed to be like a hobby to make me distinguish myself but then at some point right it became, it, what, became, it became the thing what did she want did did she have a particular career in mind for you i don't think she ever said outright i think she just wanted okay. me to not struggle so right, right, she right. and then you know she made all of my brother and my sister and I all do a hobby that was outside of academics. So my brother and sister, they did mm. musical instruments, but because I did art and my mom also, she's like, she thought I had good skill as like a, before I even remembered. So she put me towards the art path. And so I was sort of like on it without really thinking about it, kind of like you were. And then she was like, okay, once you get into college, you can stop doing that. <laughs> Right. <laughs> You're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. So funny yeah. how that. Yeah. And I understand. I mean, now as a parent, I certainly I want I mean, I think first and foremost, it's like I want my child to be happy. Right. And to be yeah. mm -hmm. fulfilled, whatever they do. But I, I get it. You know, also like working with young people now in art school where they, they're telling me similar stories about their own families and their struggles yeah, yeah. with their families accepting their their choice of pursuing an art degree yeah. of course it's like yeah i mean every parent wants their kid to be okay you know like to yeah. not struggle yeah. so i i get it it's 
<laughs> so, so after your undergrad at Pratt, did you take some time off? Did you stay around New York, or did you go straight back to Chicago and get your master's? Yeah, I um, so I graduated when nine eleven happened, and oh, wow. um, oh shit, <laughs> and so that yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, I still remember watching the towers burn from my studio in Brooklyn because we had a, you know, I think we were, I think that was a. Yeah, that was like five-story building, and I remember going to the rooftop or the or the, the you know the fifth floor and watching mm-hmm. the towers burn. So that was a really intense time, and also because you know I I was in New York and my family was pretty worried about yeah. about what things would be like, and I had been kind of talking to people in Chicago about work, and I had a, already had a position that sounded promising uh, in Chicago. So I decided to come back and, and I had like a full-time job working at the uh, National Museum of Mexican Art. It was, the, it was part of their kind of youth program mm. called Yolokali, Yolokali Youth Museum. I think it's their, technically their name now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It used to be called Yolokali Arts Reach. And so I had this like dual position where I was teaching and running art mm-hmm. program for young people and they were all free art classes. Right. And it was working with predominantly Latinx black, and Black youth. Uh-huh. And then, and then I was also doing organizing. So it was like my first official kind of organizing job. Right. So it was like a dual position. Yeah. So, and the family was really excited to have me back and it was nice. It was nice to be back. I mean, New York was, you know, fantastic. It was such a great experience as a young artist, I'm but sure. I also had a lot of, you know, struggles with art, you know, art school, just sort of, I mean, I, a lot of most of my professors were kind of ab X enthusiasts. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to talk about like if you wanted to do anything that was narrative based, you were immediately yeah, told yeah. to go to, you know, the illustration yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, program. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I really struggled with that program and, and I didn't feel like I belonged at all until well, I never felt like I belonged. But it was until I met Ernesto Pujol, who was just sort of a visiting professor my last year of school who, you know, he is Latinx and queer and um, had been really active with, you know, community work and performance and really kind of introduced me to a whole new perspective and way of thinking that really was life-changing. And and I'm so grateful that I had him in my last, I mean, I was grateful to have him in school at that time because it was, I needed that you know, I, I was sort of really, I mean, I started a Latino organization and mm. I was trying to sort of, I, and I wanted to see brown people and black people right. at my school. So, you yeah. know, kind of, I was sort of organizing and I spent maybe a, more time doing that than actually being active in like my art right. classes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of interesting. But. And it was through watching him work and his his own type of community building that you did your own. Is that what you meant? By his influence? No, no, actually, I was, I started, I think it was my second year at Pratt. I started the Latino organization. So it's before I met him, two years before I met him. And then I, you know, which is kind of amazing because now that I work at an art, private art school, I, I can't imagine giving students this much leeway. But at Pratt, I was able to get a position through their kind of cultural affairs office where I became the cultural events chair. Okay. And they gave me a substantial budget. You know, it was like $30,000 budget Whoa. to invite people to school to do special program. So I had a lot of, 
I didn't have a lot of supervision. <laughs> like I was able, I guess I was able to be really creative and invited, you know, some really great performers to, to Pratt and mm-hmm. negotiated contracts with their agents. And I just sort of learned on the job and it was fantastic. I mean, that was like one of the great benefits of being there and having such a plentiful budget was that I was really able to kind of do some interesting things. Right. And, and then really Ernesto for me kind of represented this convergence of an artistic practice that can result in discrete objects like sculptures and installations and yeah, you know, but also yeah. performances, but then also had a kind of foundation in kind of care and community and community-based, you know, social practice work that they can all inhabit a space together. Right. right you know, right. whereas before that I because of my experiences, they were in contrast to one another. They were, right. you know, they were seen as completely different. And I, that's where my struggle was. It was like, wait, my experience growing up in Chicago, which, you know, is not a sort of provincial, didn't grow up in a little province, no. you know, I was like, this is a major city. Like, <laughs> I think there's something here, right? And that, that to me. That's, that's not what I, and that's not a city I think of as provincial. <laughs> Right, right, right. So it was like, this is a way of of making and producing culture that was in so many ways in conflict with, with what my program looked like in my private art school. Right. And right. for me, Ernesto represented this opportunity to really see and appreciate and also push forward this way of making that was all about embodying all of these different kind of intricacies and subtleties that were often diminished or demeaned within a very traditional conservative art school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's funny to think of, you know, Pratt as as conservative, because when I think of Pratt, I think of New York, I think of, you know, center of the art world or once was center of the art world and, and all and all of the things that come with that. But but yeah, it's funny mm-hmm. to think about that. But yeah, I can and also like I can totally see how you know, as you're talking about all the different mediums and sort of the interdisciplinary approach to your work. I mean, I think, you know, I was kind of really amazed to look at all the different ways that you tackled your subjects, everything from sound, projection, video, uh, you know, printing on different materials and then mm-hmm. repasting them. So, yeah, I can kind of see how that came about. I'm curious, you know, when you, as you're working on your different projects, how do you decide what the material is? What is the medium? Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. have something in mind? What does that process look like? Yeah, and um, I think it it mostly comes, you know, the idea usually comes first, right? Is that, that I have a particular, you know, concept that I'm thinking about. So for example, um, I'm doing a project, I'm developing a project right now, so I'm still kind of researching that is sort of comes at the, tail end of a project I did at Cook County Jail called Radioactive Stories from Beyond the Wall, which is, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, a projection on the jail wall. And I've been I've been working there since, you know, 2012 and doing these different kinds of interventions inside and outside of the mm-hmm. of the wall. And one of the conversations I remember the most when I was working with the the radioactive ensemble, which is comprised of the people that were incarcerated inside the jail at the time, is that the the men had talked about how important performance was for them, like Mm. movement, essentially. Mm. Mm. And I incorporated a lot of movement in the workshops I led because 
you know, performance is a part of my practice. I think for so many reasons, I think it's really useful, vital, important, especially in a place of confinement, you know, like what does it mean to move your body in a way that that is not state sanctioned, you know, that in other circumstances might be considered threatening, but that is in fact a kind of release that is important to our vitality, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, they, so they talked about how important that was. So after spending some time kind of thinking about that idea, I thought, well, you know, I want to do a performance for video for this next project, kind of thinking about what that means. And so I began looking at some texts like, um, the book called Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo, which, you know, talks about a, a man who returns to Mexico to, he's searching for his, I think, father, family, and meets them eventually and realizes that they're all ghosts. He's hmm. visited a ghost town. Hmm. And that text to me seemed like a good representation of some of the things that they shared with me, which was sort of about, you know, after being released from jail they don't always have a home to go back to, you know, like mm. the things that we take for granted, right. they, you know, like there are things that they just, the basic things that are right. not even right. in place. And, and then, you know, other texts that I was thinking about. So, you know, it's like, how do I kind of think about this idea of like liberatory gestures mm. or, you know, in a space of confinement and, uh, but so now, but one of the things I'm now thinking about so much is about touch, which is related to that mm-hmm. around liberatory gesture, because one of the other elements of, of, right, of performing using your own body is the importance and value of touch, touching hands right. in a moment where we can't touch, where we're sort of, you know, we have to be safe through social distancing, although now that's changing. But also intimacy, you know, like the importance of intimacy in terms of just connection and being together and having community. So that has now led me to thinking about a visceral experience. So performance, movement, but also thinking about material, like different kinds of textures and surfaces and how to engage material through a performance, whether that's through like objects, sculptures, or structures to lean the body on, to lay the body on, to, mm. to place on top of the body. So that's, you know, I, you know, oftentimes it's like, it's like giving myself time to just research and to see what percolates. Right. I'm also in discussion with some of the men that, that were released and have since stayed out of jail and they will become part of the project, this, this new version of the project. So talking to them too, and, and kind of ba- basically just bouncing ideas like one would, like we're doing yeah. here, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And then seeing sort of seeing what sticks. Yeah, yeah. But then I also leave things to happen once we're together. So mm. I'm not going to predetermine every part of this, but just sort of create some sense of a, you know, like a vision and a loose structure. And then as we're working together, we can build it up and really shape it. So that's how I think about it. It's like, I want to bring all the tools together, bring all the elements together in a loose structure. And then together, we're going to sort of, you know, make it one cohesive thing. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's often how I think about my community practice. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it is a kind of act of improvisation, but, you know, improvisation, as we know, is takes a lot of skill you know it just it's not about like throwing something together or like winging it like it's about like 
we have, you know, you have these tools that, that one has been sharpening and, right, and right. using and, and adapt, you know, and playing, and then you can adapt it you can shape it a different right. way. Right. And then people can then use them too. Because I, I think that, you know, like even in my teaching, I have found it, or even in my own practice, it's like having some set of guides makes for better work. Mm. Like having every option available sometimes just makes it too overwhelming. Yeah. Especially yeah, yeah. if, you know, you're working with people that are not familiar. They don't necessarily have those tools or they've never identified some right, of their right, skills right. as tools. So you're kind of like starting to hone them in. Right acknowledge or just produce them and so i'd like to sort of think about guides that are about making an experience generative and not necessarily like predictable or prescriptive right, right. and that's really important also especially in these sort of community building aspects because people are complicated and people are constantly kind of figuring out what they want what they need right people don't know necessarily what they want they need and that's very different from a sort of strictly studio practice where you're like, okay, I'm going to make this thing. And the, <laughs> the thing isn't going to argue back with me, you know, and, and then the thing happens, right? And yeah. you have to sort of be yeah. valuable kind of like what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And the context can change, you know, like when yeah. I was planning this project, I started planning this project two or three years ago, as a matter of fact, and because of COVID, all of that has had to be reworked. Right, right, right. And you're absolutely right. You know, like no community is monolithic. Also, I grow and change. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm not a constant here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm also growing and changing. And I think sometimes it's, that's difficult. I think sometimes, at least in my experience, I have felt a sort of pressure within a kind of community practice to be a kind of constant. You know, like mm -hmm. this is what we go to you for. It's like, well, actually... Yeah, I'm changing. I'm growing. I also need different things. And I think it's important to sort of, at least one of the things I've learned in the last few years is that I think it's important to be transparent about that mm -hmm. um, and not feel bad about it. You know, it's like right. not feel guilty about that because that is human nature. And, but I, I think that the utmost important thing is to just value and to, it is a different set of risks, you know, like yeah. taking a risk in your studio is entirely different than doing it with a group of people who have been marginalized, you mm -hmm. know, like it, one has to really like think through, through all of those aspects. Right? Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you quickly talk about how you started the 96 acre project and give it a little bit of background about it? And then I guess the other question I had for you, if you could answer is at least on your website, you, it says you, the project sort of stopped in 2016, but it seems like you are continuing to work on it still so so what is the current form of the project um looking like yeah did the project in 2012 and it included uh an amazing community advisory team i was working with a community organization that you know has is located just a few blocks from the jail um as well as a public art organization so there were a lot of different players and people that were a part of this and, and others, of course, others, other kinds of partnerships. And the project predominantly focused on creating a kind of momentum and essentially a kind of movement around the invisibility of the jail, the way that the jail was both invisible, but also visible and mm -hmm. sort of when does the jail appear and disappear and why, right? And of course, that led to conversations about mass incarceration 
abolition, though we may not have been talking about abolition from the very beginning, because this, again, this is 2012. And I think our mm. conversations have become much more mature and um, more people are talking about things like abolition now, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. But I would say, you know, restorative justice and conversations around those ideas were really important to us at the time. And so that led to you know, doing projects outside of the institution and really just sort of getting people to look, to confront, to contend, to think critically about how this, you know, criminal legal system affects predominantly Black and Latinx and poor people and, and trans communities, etc. And that we think about ways of working against it. And we created this uh, kind of vision for the project that was about creating counter narratives and doing it through a lot of different kinds of artists, projects, and mm -hmm. installations mostly. We had gotten funding for all of those projects, and then that funding was all, you know, used. Uh, okay. And, and you know, things just sort of slowed down. I'd gotten a fellowship at the time where I was interested in working on the inside of the jail. And so things sort of shifted, mm -hmm. and the focus became working with people on the inside of the institution and also kind of working more intimately with that group of people and not mm -hmm. tr not trying to do everything, <laughs> right, <laughs> which right. I think sometimes 96 Acres Project felt like it was trying to do everything. Yeah. And also I had a kind of, you know, moment just in my own practice where I felt like the scale of it became quite large. It felt, which was exciting, but at the same time, it also felt a bit unwieldy in some ways. And I really was thinking about, you know, what is the integrity of this work? And, you know, it's important to include the voices of those currently incarcerated, now focusing on that group of people since, you know, we'd been working on the outside for like four or five years. So, right. so then Radioactive kind of became its own project really as, as a sort of departure point from 96 Acres Project. And then, yeah, so that's sort of how that sort of panned out. And, you know, how do you see the project bridging that gap between this art world and then this completely different other world of, you know, incarceration, uh, people without the means necessarily to engage in this sort of art dialogue? And what is what was that sort of process like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I wonder what the art world I mean, there's so many different kinds of art worlds, right? Yeah, of, like this of idea of the art yeah. world. No, I know, I know that's, that's, uh, I, I know that's, I know, you know that. But, you know, even that alone, I sort of think about so much, like, you know, there's like sort of the gallery mm -hmm. market, the art fair market, and, mm -hmm. and there's sort of academia and art school. And, you know, there's just, there's so many different kinds of cultures that exist within the artistic field, whatever. And, I mean, I think the most important kind of like the way I, I think about this in terms of um, a guide, my own guide is that, you know, it's important to understand the context of any community. And even if one doesn't fully understand it yet, because it's also a pro like a process, you know, like I still feel like I'm understanding mass incarceration, you know, and mm -hmm. I've been kind of actively working around this issue for almost 10 years, but I, I still don't, I'm still learning. I still don't fully, right. I'm still kind of figuring it out myself. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, context is important. You know, the context of, you know, the Contemporary Art Museum Houston is different from the context of, right. you know, whatever, a, a Chicago museum or, right, clearly mm -hmm. the Cook County Jail. But then there's these moments where it's like, wow, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> here too in terms of, 
in you know the the sort of infrastructure of bureaucracy and mm-hmm. power the you know the way that the prison industrial complex or the carceral state extends and influences other kinds of institutions mm-hmm. and the way that structures of power you know are, are again are just embedded in our everyday lives and so I think that helped me so much also navigate, say, a museum structure, having had the experience of working with uh, prisons and jails like Cook County Jail Mm. to sort of think about it in a different light. And and it's not to say, you know, and, and, you know, it's not to say that I'm not trying to say that they're equal. Right. In terms of Mm -hmm. their impact. (laughs) Right. Clearly, I know that Angola prison or, you know, Cook County Jail are really founded upon, you know, uh, a sort of oppressive, you know, power structure that, Mm -hmm. you know, is not about rehabilitating people. The museum, though, has a colonial history and has a violent history itself. And so that is also doesn't have a a clear, like clean or something, right, foundation. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, so, so, but I, I think that it is important to kind of see how these things, there are overlaps. So, that has been an important thing to consider as I'm navigating these different kinds of institutions, you know, that I, mm-hmm. sometimes I see them as the same right. and sometimes I don't, but I, I I'm not going to exclude their similarities. And, you know, also, you know, I did a project in New Haven, Connecticut at a, a detention center there and mm-hmm. much, a much smaller jail, maybe in comparison to the Cook County jails, like, five times smaller, but it was also, you know, similar in context to Little Village and Cook County Jail, where, you know, it, it was in, inside of a Black and Latinx community. It was located there and a block away from the high school. You know, people knew folks going in and out. People knew mm-hmm. some of the guards that worked there, you know, that, that kind of coexisting. Like, right, right. this is not an institution that is out in the cornfields. Right, right. It's also not a prison, right? Like, a prison, you know, you might be in there for like decades or a lifetime, sadly. A jail is, is you know, sometimes people are there up to seven years, sadly. It's meant to be a place where you go when you're, you know, charged or waiting for trial. But as mm-hmm. we know, people are waiting for trial for so many years. Right. So it's a place of limbo, but there's backed everything's backed up. Yeah. And sometimes people are sort of in and out of that institution. So you know, so there are a lot of sort of differences in that respect, but I think that context is important to know, you know, like, so when I, when I was working with some of the people in radioactive, I knew that some of them had been in and out for like, you know, 20 years since they were young people. But I think that um, when we're producing work, you know, it's like understanding that context and that reality and, but also I think making space for the abstract, the surreal the sort of projection, you know, the kind of creative act of, I think people say a lot, reimagining, like Mm -hmm. that is such a powerful, it is such a powerful act. And that idea of reimagining is a form of rehearsing an overthrow of power, Mm. a kind of resistance. It is a kind of empowering act. It allows for a a, a criticality and a creativity that I I do think will propel, Mm. you know, a different kind of, I hope society, you know, mm. and I, I think those are all the same attributes that I want to think 
that, you know, maybe a sculpture can do, <laughs> you know, like, and maybe not in the same way, but I think that it is advocating for, or, or at least kind of cueing for a, a different way of thinking, a different right, perspective. Right, and of right. course, I mean, you know, we can argue about like, I'm sure, right, certain kinds of art pieces, you know, and I think some do it better than others, and maybe some mm -hmm. don't care to do that at all. But in yeah. my artistic practice, you know, that's what I'm about, you know, that that's, that's, I don't think it's about a solution, but I do think it is about a sort of proposition and a kind of rehearsal for something else. Right, right, right. I like the idea of a sort of rehearsal for something, you mm -hmm. know, I'm thinking also about mm -hmm. maybe a hope or a dream of something, mm -hmm. I guess rehearsal for a dream or rehearsal for a, for mm -hmm. a hope or a better future, um, as often mm -hmm. said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess one one thing that I was also curious about in a lot of the works that you did with 96 Acres, you use sound a lot, and you also use mm -hmm. sound a lot also in projects uh, beyond that. But I was curious, what is how do you, you know what is your relationship to sound, and how did you decide to use it? And I'm also asking in terms of like how I think sound is such a difficult medium to use as an artist, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're a sound artist and thinking about what that means. And so, yeah, I'm curious, how, how did that sort of come about mm -hmm. to use sound as a medium mm -hmm. and why is it so important? Mm. Oh man, I love sound art. I just like love, you know, I didn't, I, I wish I had uh, been introduced to it, you know, in my early artist career, but you know, my mom did radio. So I think I was always interested in the broadcast, mm. you know, I mean, even, you know, like what you're doing. I, I mean, I was also thinking what you earlier said, how with through your Catholic upbringing, you were told to be quiet. And so this is your way right. of, of doing the opposite. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's it. I didn't think of it like that. But, I, you know, I like that. I like the way that, I mean, I like the idea of the broadcast. And, you know, the broadcast has been used historically as, you know, a propaganda machine. Mm -hmm. But it also is used in sort of guerrilla tactics. And um, I, I really like the complexity of that form. And also you can't like get away from sound, you know, like you can't escape it. There's sound ordinances, but you know, it's just like you're saying, it's so difficult, it's so difficult to grasp and, you know, yeah. we can't see it. So that's also a challenge, which is also like my intrigue mm -hmm. is how sound can penetrate a surface, can penetrate a room, a wall, a border division the way it moves through is is so fascinating to me and and you know when you think about the sound waves themselves i think that is just it's just so fascinating to me like when i look at waveforms the way the shape of the waveform and the way that it moves visually or maybe because i started it off as like a painter that sort of visual is really gratifying for me and it helps mm -hmm. me understand, but I'm still like not fully grasping it, which is so, like, that's why I like it so much. Mm -hmm. It's so ethereal and um, which, you know, coming from a mural practice and coming from a, a city with such a strong mural, even a visual mural, like visual practice that sometimes I have had a hard time. And I think more before, but to kind of, propose public projects, you know, using sound. I, I have found that sometimes, who, you know, partners or funders or whatever, that that is not like legitimate enough sometimes. <laughs> like they need to see something. They want permanence, like yeah, 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 permanence. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I'm interested in how, like, how does that act, the performance, the sound work, the, the experience of a, of a living work that is 
temporary have maybe a more long lasting effect on someone mm. than let's say a quote unquote permanent structure. I mean, also because nothing is permanent, right? Everything right. is like not to get all existential here, but <laughs> there's that piece, but it's also that like literally it's not, you know, like you yeah, have yeah. to do retouching and you have to like, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so I think that is, I love that piece. I, I, I think because it, it allows for so much, creativity and openness and experimentation that I'm really yearning for, mm-hmm. you know, like play. It's about mm-hmm. play. And, um, but also in, in a more sort of another light, when I was recording, when we were doing recordings in Radioactive, I mean, the sort of power of the recording of creating the artifact, mm-hmm. like when um, one of the Radioactive ensemble members, like he kept wanting well, he didn't quite follow the guide that I had, that we had given them. Like he was just wanting to do his own thing, which is fine. But he just wanted to tell his story, like of him growing up and mm-hmm. like having had a mom who, you know, was a drug addict and how, you know, his experience and trauma. And he kept wanting to re-record it. We, I mean, we would sit there for like an hour, right? Recording. And I think it was, we recorded it maybe three times. I knew this story really well because I'd heard it several times and we, it, it didn't, we couldn't use it for the final project because we didn't want those recordings to be held against them in, mm. in court. So okay. that's why we also talked about fiction, used fiction as mm. a way to kind of talk about things, right. but it, it clearly was important for him to just have somebody hear his right. story. Right. And, and then like the recording of it then for me became important, like to put something down. Mm. So I, you know, when I think about like archives and the way that BIPOC people, you know, have been sort of left out of history, part of that is due to the lack of, you know, like the, there's no archives, like people aren't writing about it. I mean, yeah. you yeah. are doing this podcast you're creating an archive right which i mean obviously that's important to you and i like the importance of that otherwise there are no records and so i I think a lot about the sort of practicality of that too and the sort of political power of that yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean and i think it's sort of interesting how you're talking about also the recording of it and sort of making permanent this thing that is so mm. ephemeral, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of mm-hmm. a beauty in that. And, and again, sort of also thinking about how it is probably the least Instagrammable things, which also makes it the <laughs> hardest thing. Because I think every, everyone now is all about yeah. Instagrammable art. I was at a gallery recently. Right. The, uh, the gallery owner was sort of upset at the current show because they were like saying it's not really like picture friendly mm. for visitors right yeah and, and yeah like yeah that. yeah I know I, I I feel like um my tendency I think it's like this is my my little like inner joke but I you know I grew up in the hood you know like that's how I identify I'm proud of it you know it was complicated but my reaction when I hear something like that is like okay I'm gonna do that more than like I want to make it <laughs> like the least Instagrammable <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and maybe that's i don't know maybe part of it is maybe like being so interested in site responsive work you know yeah, is, yeah, is yeah. um thinking about like what is the sort of polar opposite of something you yeah, know and like yeah. how does one then that's interesting and it's not you know and it's like it's not about being a contrarian for being a you know just con- just to, to do that but it's you know it's about like 
yeah, I mean, I think it's about power, you know, and kind of disassembling that or like mm-hmm. pushing against that in some way. I just made a piece. I don't, I'm not sure if you saw it on the website, but um, it's going to be released officially today because oh, okay. um, the MIT, MIT List Art Center yeah, commissioned okay. yeah. a sound walk. And so I made a sound walk uh, that is, it's on my website. I just haven't really like what's it, what's it called? been promoting it. It's called A Score for Adam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I saw that. After yeah. Adam Toledo, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're going to release it today. But, you know, that was that was a really hard piece to make. And, I mean, basically in the sound work, I'm essentially, it's it's you hear me kind of walking around. I sort of walk the radius of where Adam Toledo, who was a young boy, was shot and killed by Chicago police. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he had raised his hands, they shot him. Yeah. It was like only a year ago. Yeah. Well, it was actually, uh, no, it was, yeah, in March. Yeah, yeah. March, I believe. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, but <clears throat> one of the things that I, when I was, when I was recording and doing, just going out there and doing field recordings, basically, I, I had a different idea in mind what I was going to do. But once I went there and looked at all of the objects and I, you know, it was like, you know, these objects alone, like what mm-hmm. pe- people are leaving in the memorial, Mm-hmm. Um, and there were so many things. I mean, it was like, you know, candy and uh, plushies and signs and paintings and flags. I mean, all kinds of handmade things. And I was sort of thinking like, really, I just want to make an index of these objects. Mm. That is, it's basically just going to be me reading the objects because they, in its, you know, they, they in themselves hold so much power and that, that I, I don't think I can really do anything else you know like at one point I didn't want the listener to hear my voice I was gonna try to subtract my voice somehow or distort Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and then I realized that that actually no it's it is sort of also about me it's about me kind of mourning for this young boy who I never I didn't meet but I know I know Adam in many ways you know Mm -hmm. like because he grew up couple blocks from my mom's house my parents house and mm-hmm. went to my mom's school where she worked at for many decades oh, wow. so like and so that 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 was a I was like no let's that feels right you know it feels right to just mm-hmm. people just hear me reading it it's, it's such a simple piece in so many ways but it it felt like I just need to tell people what's there like right. what's what's in this memorial right right you know so that was a difficult piece to make and I in some ways still talk like talk about it because I think I'm still processing it and so so are like so is my community I think yeah yeah I mean that that whole month last year was sort of like reckoning that I think the country was partially unprepared for and some people were prepared Mm -hmm. for it but it was yeah it was like a really intense moment I remember that and I was actually I think I was uh, so we actually have a mutual friend Yvette Mayorga oh so I know, yeah. I know you that. So yeah. So I think a few months after we were chatting about it and, we, and it was sort of, mm. you know, really, yeah, just difficult to sort of like think about just the way that these different communities were impacted. And I can only mm. imagine because mm-hmm. I wasn't, I'm not from Chicago. Right. Yeah. 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 It's interesting how even if one, you know, like I, yeah, if you don't know the, well, yeah. I mean, I think it's just about, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's injustice, right. And it's, it's seeing it and just to, to see it affect so many people and it's uh heartbreaking and upsetting and um 
all of those different feelings. So regardless of if it's, you know, you're being directly affected or not. Right, um, right. So, I mean, yeah. part of it's just sort of seeing, you know, humans as humans, right? And, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and then I saw that you knew Yvette through your piece, the Brown Brilliance Darkness Matter piece. Because uh, mm-hmm. I saw that you had invited Yvette to perform. I, I never knew that she ever, she performed. <laughs> So I'm probably going to ask her about it later, but yeah. But what was it? So what was that process like in terms of? I know you. So as I understand it, you worked with the National Museum of Mexican Art, um, and you worked mm-hmm. with the the archives, um, different types of archives, with both the museum and your own archives, and then you invited mm-hmm. performers. And so what was mm-hmm. you know that whole process like involving all these different aspects? Yeah, I. Um you know, worked with, uh, I, I, you know, I worked for the museum when, when I was a really young teaching artist mm-hmm. in right out of undergrad. So I, I've had a long relationship to the museum, but also prior to that, like it's the first national Mexican museum in the country. Mm-hmm. It has a, an, a, an amazing kind of legacy. Uh, it was started by mostly teachers in the community who oh, wanted to that. see you know, yeah, representation of um, Mexican artists, and mm. they wanted a you know, museum, and so eventually this led to to this museum. So it, it has a really amazing legacy, which I really respect, and um, it's the one of the few free museums too. So I think that's important to note. I visited it once, and I got a pin from them. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to go to downtown for it, right? It's it's right yeah, in the yeah, neighborhood. Yeah. You can just walk down the block, go play basketball next door to it because mm-hmm. they're on the um, uh, Chicago Park District land. Uh, so I think I think those are all really interesting, important things to note about the museum. And they invited me to do a show, and then uh, <laughs> I, you know, just was curious about their permanent collection and. It got a tour of it. And then uh, I saw that one of the categories in their permanent collection was called eph- ephemera. And so, of course, I'm like, I love this idea of <laughs> looking at the ephemeral collection in a yeah. permanent collection. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. like, how does that work? Yeah. So I was d- drawn to these postcards that I found that uh, I guess somebody donated to them. And I think it was a, a white American person who donated all these postcards okay. um, of, you know, they would visit Mexico and then send postcards to the U S and they okay. were, you know, these sort of kind of stereotypical images of yeah. Mexicans. Yeah, yeah. And I was fascinated by those portrayals of young Mexican kids or families. Um, and then I was also looking at other artifacts from their ethereal collection that included wipiles, like handmade blouses, Mexican blouses and other things. And I love, I love textiles, like textiles is also a big passion of mine. Mm -hmm. And so, so after doing that, I identified a number of materials that I would work from and then I recreated them. So I was made them in clay and I have been doing a lot of these brown outs over the years. And it started from, you know, like back in, graduate school where I was making brown outs. I was like browning out entire rooms Mm -hmm. with like spray guns and um, (laughs) creating like suits (laughs) of brown suits where I would kind of move around uh, different countries like Iceland or Mm -hmm. others, which then led into these disappearing suits that I've been making. Right. And um, the sculptures that I made are made of clay and painted brown and then uh, glazed brown. And then I, created these uh, weavings where I collaged with paper some of the prints some of the postcards that I scanned Uh and printed myself and then I uh, integrated them into family photographs and so 
there's like your, pictures your, of your, my own, parents. Your, your own family's photographs. Yeah, my own family. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I was thinking, you know, mostly about uh, in some ways how, you know, it's such a prominent museum that is so, you know, so vital and important, but also how do cultural institutions that are just you know, too few of them that, the, that they kind of then narrate a particular kind of story. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to sort of trouble that story in some ways. And so taking these kind of essentialized images of Mexicans right. and then right, integrating right. them with my own family, then to create a different kind of image. Right, right. And then I, I scanned those those collages and then printed them on these large scale pieces of fabric and it was translucent. And then I browned out the rooms. I worked with a graffiti artist and uh, who, I mean, I couldn't find anybody who can sort of airbrush large scale, but I found this great person who was like, I got you. (laughs) So he created a sort of fade. So the room was kind of a brown fade. And, and then these objects were placed on Mexican design furniture, like Uh Acapulco furniture okay. i didn't want anything on like white pedestals like, like <laughs> white pedestals and me we don't we don't get along yeah so and then these performers were either like students of mine or friends of mine and most of them were like you said like not performance artists i don't yeah. i don't think any of them i mean one of them does spoken word okay but otherwise everybody some of them aren't artists i mean yvette may have been the only artist i think okay. others were like arts administrators or okay. culture workers okay. yeah but I, I like i like working with artists and non-artists and i gave them a prompt which so i gave them like the catalog card of each object and then they had to create a, a facto fictional story that was mm-hmm. about a paragraph long mm-hmm. and they had to act as docents and then tell the story so they would show people mm-hmm. the object and they would like so some people talked about for example crossing the border and they they invented you know some I think it was Yvette that talked about this sort of magical stick that her father crossed with. Uh, my friend Amanda talked about when her mother started doing Mexican folk dancing as a young woman. Mm-hmm. My friend Michael did a piece about crystals and brown crystals and a kind of it sounded a bit like you know. Chicanx futurism or something like that you know it was like totally otherworldly so yeah. yeah it was it was fun and it took place during it was I forget the name it was like a Latinx art his, history conference okay so it opened on that night I believe and the performance took place that night and so those art historians came and were oh wow that's amazing you know was, so I was like thinking a little bit about what how they would respond right. and then and then of course because it's a free museum I mean People from the neighborhood come and you know, everybody's like, everybody, it's many different kinds of people show up. So yeah, yeah, yeah so that's yeah. how that, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Sure. I, lo- I mean, I love that idea of storytelling, especially because I, I used to be a painter mm-hmm. too. And mm-hmm. I kind of got away from painting as I realized storytelling was important to me. And I just couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell stories mm-hmm. with the painting. I mean, I'm sure some painters would argue otherwise, yeah. but, but the way that I guess the sort of vocalization of stories, the sort of verbal storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, narrative storytelling, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. find in painting. And so I guess mm-hmm. this idea of telling mm-hmm. stories, I think, is really fascinating to me. I guess kind of going back a little, you mentioned your your suits, your disappearance pieces. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, mm-hmm. it was actually, I, I saw those pieces before I knew exactly who you were. I saw, so I saw the, uh, I saw the review of the show in El, El Museo and your by Holland mm. Cotter. And I saw the picture yeah. of, of your piece. And then 
So I, I kind of remembered mm. it. And then when I finally yeah. uh, looked you up and reached out, I was like, oh, you're that person. <laughs> but yeah, I was curious, you know, I was I really like those pieces partially because I also do rant sometimes videos of me and costumes and landscapes. So I'm curious, like, you know, how do you mm. go about making these disappearance suits? Mm. Do they only exist as, as a sort of documentation, you know, via photograph or, you know, are, are there mm. videos? Is the video maybe non-porn? And what is, yeah. how does also the location happen? Because you, at least mm-hmm. from the ones I saw, you had three different locations and how you kind of pick mm. those locations. Yeah, yeah. Well, I started doing the suits in um, 2011 or 12, uh, I think, when I was in Iceland. And at the time, I had been making these large-scale brown fabric pieces where I was, mm-hmm. like, hanging, essentially kind of making walls, but sort okay. of malleable walls. And they were painted walls, so they were brown. And big, you're still doing um, that. <laughs> still sort of doing that, yeah. Walls and, like, murals, clearly. Like, yeah, I'm making... Yeah kind of a mural basically (laughs) yeah and so so I went to Reykjavik for residency Mm -hmm. and I went during the midnight sun so I wanted to see what brown looked like during the midnight sun that was like my Mm -hmm. like my goal so I I made a a series of pictures where I'm kind of running around parts of Iceland and sometimes in the city sometimes outside of the city and photographing myself doing this and I you know and Reykjavik is, you know, pretty homogeneous. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see a lot of non-Icelandic people there. Yeah. Um, so I was interested in kind of putting my body in that space and putting my body in the suit in that space. And I think um, at the time they were called brown, brownout suits or something like that. I forgot. And then eventually, I, you know, other residencies I went to, like I went to the headlands and I made a suit made of the dry grasses on mm-hmm. the hills there and kind of stitched that on and then did, did a similar thing, kind of photographed myself in the landscape. And, and I, you know, it was, was sort of, you know, interesting side note is that a lot of these artist residencies are in kind of um, rural locations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. it was, it was also kind of about what it meant mm. as a, a kind of, you know, yeah, immigrant woman going to these rural locations mm-hmm. that are also sometimes scary mm-hmm. to be in, to be yeah. honest, right? Mm-hmm. It's not very diverse. It's like, <laughs> I also did one in Captiva during my Rauschenberg residency in using the, the ocean and That's made Florida, a silver right? suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. a little island. And then uh, another one in Switzerland and in the snow. Mm. The one in, in Florida was was an interesting one because we were the fellows that were there um, were the artists as activists, Rauschenberg fellows. We were all there at the same time. Uh, so people okay. like Jackie Sumel, okay. you know, Fabiana Rodriguez, okay. El Sawyer, you know, activist artists, people. And we were all there and um, we found a Confederate flag with a dead animal by the what? by the residency, by the dock. Okay. Yeah. So that was a scary moment, and that led to a lot of conversations with the organization and about, you know, what does it mean to bring kind of artists as activists into right. this island that in Florida, right, which probably is very Republican and conservative, mm-hmm. as we saw, right. and um, what does safety look like for us, you know, because after that, we felt some people that were there were formerly incarcerated people, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So anyway, it led to a lot of really difficult conversations around that, but also 
we were kind of disappointed because we were all kind of there thinking, oh, we're going to use the facilities. Like we're going to be in this like beautiful, Mm -hmm. serene, magical place (laughs) to just, you know, and all of us were like, you know what? We just want to make work for ourselves. We don't want to do any like community-based stuff here. We just want to like make prints and like, and then we were then confronted with, with this and we're like, man, you know, like we can't, can't get away from it. Right. So it was was a deer wrapped in a Confederate flag. Not a deer. It was like a, Oh, what was it? Like a chicken? Maybe it was a chicken. It was just hanging. Yeah. With the Confederate flag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think the organization started doing some major kind of community uh, work in the area and other, yeah. Other things things of anti-racist stuff so anyway but i'm telling you that as a side note but but i think it's important to know because you know i thought of i mean that particular situation did inform that project you know of of being kind of washed away or Mm -hmm. or crossing right crossing the ocean or something like that so each of them is made really you know as a site-specific work it's an ongoing project so i'll just you know i'm going to keep doing them until i can and so and we'll sail right now the fish you see the suits and then you have the photographs. Right. I have not done any videos of it. Mainly, you know, mainly sticking to stills. Yeah. And I see them as performances for the camera. Okay. But I am interested in developing these suits up some more, and maybe even photographing the suits one to one. Yeah. And printing them in one to one scale. So I'm kind of still thinking through that. But yeah, it'll just be an ongoing project. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was thinking both about disappearance, but also disappearance as a kind of counter resistance and, you know, reading a lot of Simone Brown's work around dark surveillance and Mm -hmm. dark surveillance as being a kind of strategy for kind of, you know, like fugitivity. That's how I think about it. Mm And, and, and really to me, it's about a kind of a resistance practice. So I, I think of those suits in that way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I guess it's also it's also interesting to kind of look at these pieces for these disappearance suits because you were talking about like you know having these ephemeral objects mm-hmm. and but like mm-hmm. the the photographs mm-hmm. are just I would I have mm-hmm. to say like they're really striking right they're like really mm-hmm. well composed they're like a lot of times sh- they a lot of them seem to be shot during golden hour the perfect lighting right. and so there's this sort of like majestic mm. looking kind of you know mm. feeling in the suits and which is in sharp contrast to the sort of like the idea of like you're talking mm. about the sort of disappearance mm. kind of blending into the landscape as as a body and what does mm. that body mean mm-hmm. yeah i love that i'm thinking about the sort of magic hour yeah yeah it's, it makes me think about um yeah escape escape routes or um transformation transformation yeah yeah shape-shifting mm-hmm. the relation to magic you know mm-hmm. alchemy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the above um all the yeah. above so yeah do you have anything that you're working on right now i know you just released the piece by adam toledo mm-hmm. and um you you said you're also working bits and pieces for the i guess the people that were once part of the 96 acre project and do you have anything else that you're sort of working mm-hmm. on do you are it seems like you're working on like 20 different projects that's sort of why i'm asking <laughs> yeah pretty much the, the actually the piece that i'm doing that i'm working on right now the, the researching performance for video and thinking about sculptures and objects is uh, working with people from the radioactive 
stories okay. from beyond the wall project which and some of them have now since been released so we're 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 working on it right now um so that's in progress and i'm hoping that starts sometime this fall like late august early september and then the other thing that is let's see but i'm in conversation right now with the county here to film the demolition of the Cook County jail so the the jail is de- demolishing oh, they, oh, a, a really? massive one one of the divisions yeah oh. so i have gotten the green light from one part of you know institution i have yet to get the second part uh, approved and it's yeah. it's complicated already because they're working with contractors and stuff but but the the plan is to film the six months demolition they're doing it piece by piece and what i'm hoping is that eventually you know after six months after the demolition i will use that footage to create a, a video sound installations so i'm also doing recordings of the demolition sound recordings of right, the demolition right. Right. that will then work as a kind of just installation piece but then i'm also planning to do a series of conversations where I invite different people, activists, artists, scholars, not just Chicago-based, but beyond to talk about abolition and, and thinking about the sort of unbuilding, unbuilding of prisons and jails and, and looking at that as a sort of way to talk about the deconstruction mm-hmm. of it and also the implications, but also the kind of narrative that might be communicated via that deconstruction. Right. That that we can kind of complicate in our conversation. So 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 you know that'll be that'll be a while. Yeah, that that might be like, uh, hopefully in a year that will be ready. So yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you know whatever, however the piece presents itself. You know, as as we've been talking about, you you play with all these different mediums, so it also might shift and change. So I'm excited to see yeah, you know that right. form. So yeah, we we've talked about so many different things, and I want to thank you so much for thank for chatting you. with me. Um, you, if you can, can you let the listeners know where they can find you and learn more about your work, and follow all the different things that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you and and to be part of your project and program. And it's nice to share space with you. So so thank you for doing this. Um, yeah, if folks are interested in seeing more of my work, you can go to mariagaspar.com and I have a selection of projects there and my contact information is there. I'm also active on Instagram, but I don't I don't have a public page. So if I don't know you, I may not <laughs> accept your friendship. <laughs> but you know, let me know who you are and then I can I can do that. Introduce yourself to me. But yeah, that's hey, don't be uh, shy. Yeah, that's where folks can find me. Yeah, don't be shy. I'm very, I'm very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> all right well again thank you so much maria and hopefully you know i'll get to see you soon in a post-pandemic world i'll be able to travel to chicago please come yes yeah looking forward to that yeah i'm looking forward to that too all right thank you so much maria have a wonderful day okay thank you too all right bye 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 (laughs) seeing color is recorded Edited and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle SeeingColorPod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, 
I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.